Uh, with a quick show of hands, uh, how many of y'all have ever been to Galveston, Texas? Galveston, Texas, right down just south uh, west of us. Well, if you were to venture to Pleasure Pier and maybe on your way back home, uh, drive just north of the Pleasure Pier and go by the city football stadium, you'll see a park there and a statue named after probably the most well-known Galvestonian. His name is Jack Johnson. No, not the singer, uh, but the boxer Jack Johnson, who in 1908 became the first ever world champion who happened to be African-American, the first black world champion in boxing. And he was very uh, controversial because of the fact that um, he would flaunt his wealth. He would wear expensive furs and have jewelry. Uh, he would get limousines and travel first class everywhere, we, everywhere he went. He was proud of that. At the time, uh, he would regularly date white women. So here's a black man in America dating white women. He even married three white women. He also would regularly question white men, both inside the ring and challenge white men outside the ring as well. And so because of this, it made him very controversial. He's very radical for his time. Matter of fact, uh, interracial marriage was not even legalized until 1967, many, many years after his death. But here's the thing. I don't want to talk about Jack Johnson, the boxing champ. What I want to talk about in the theme of being radical is this. Throughout history, what has made Christians radical? What has set us apart? What has made us countercultural? And historians, both Christians and non-Christian historians, have agreed that this is probably the hallmark that makes us radical, countercultural, different than the world around us. And so with uh, your uh, prayers, if you turn with me to Matthew 5, we're going to look at the sermon, No One Wants to Hear, Part 2. What makes Christians radical? What is it that makes us radical? Matthew 5, 43, and we're continuing the series in the Sermon on the Mount. And again, the twofold purpose Sermon on the Mount. One is to convict the Pharisees and their self-righteousness, the way they think they can keep God's commands on their own, but also to challenge us as believers, as kingdom citizens, to say if you are a kingdom citizen and Christ is your king and you <clears throat> submit under him, then here's how you should live. So what is it that makes Christianity radical? And here it is, verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So what makes us radical, as you can tell, is our love for our enemies and our prayers for those who persecute us. But here's point number one. I want to address verse 43 first. God's command to love our neighbor doesn't mean that we should hate our non-neighbor. And that's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees had people that had hurt them. They had Roman oppressors. And so what they would do is they would twist the scriptures to say, you know what? If God wants us to love our neighbor, then the opposite must be true, that he must want us to hate our non-neighbor. And that gave them permission to hate the Romans and other Jews that did not believe and think like them. So they created this very narrow group of people who they would call their neighbor. And using Leviticus 19, they would flip it and say, now we can hate our non-neighbor because God says to love your neighbor. But here's the thing. I don't know if you know this. You can make the Bible say anything you want it to say if you take it out of context. You can condone any lifestyle, anything choice you make if you take a Bible verse out of context. So let's look at Leviticus 19. So turn to me to Leviticus 19. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, third book of the Bible. Leviticus 19. 
Leviticus 19. We got to look at the rest of the verse. Again, these proud Pharisees, like us, if we can be honest, God wants us to conform our lives to the Bible. He wants us to conform our lives to the Bible. What the Pharisees did was they conformed the Bible to their lives. They say, I want to have means and justification for hating Romans and hating these Jews who think differently than I do. Look at verse 17, 1917. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in verse 17, you shall not hate your fellow countrymen. So he's talking about Israelites, about Jews. So he's saying, hey, don't hate your fellow Jews. Again, he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, don't bear any grudge against the sons of your people. So they take that to say, if I'm not supposed to bear any grudges against Jews, not to hate Jews, I'm supposed to love my neighbor, then that means I can hate non-Jews. That's how they were twisting and taking this verse out of context. Well, why do you say that? Look at verse 33. Look at verse 33, 1933. Leviticus 1933. When a stranger, an alien, a foreigner, a non-Jew resides with you in your land, you shall, do, uh, you shall not do him wrong. The stranger, the foreigner, the alien, the non-Jew who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, as a Jew among you. You shall love him as yourself, for you are aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. God cannot speak any higher, so he says, I am the Lord your God. He says, you can bank on this. At one time, you were strangers and aliens in Egypt, and because of that, I hope you remember that that was once you. Now, when you have strangers and non-Jews and foreigners in your land, love them as you love yourself. And the Pharisees conveniently left that out. Because again, you can, take, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to if you take a verse out of context and use what I would call faulty interpretation. And even preachers and all that, you can take a part of my sermon and take it totally out of context and people will say, you said this. And I said, yes, I said that, but get the whole context of what I was saying. Uh, many years ago when I was pastoring, um, and I still feel this way, uh, for many of the young single women in our congregation, uh, you all are like daughters to me, and I have this very protective mind about you all. So I, I was challenging. I said, uh, I've been a part of churches the size of Bayou City, even larger churches. And one thing I know is that guys will come to churches to stalk women. And we had a, a situation at the church I passed where a guy came to stalk this girl. And so we had asked him, hey, you need to leave because you've been doing this at other churches. And so I said this to the congregation that Sunday. I said, you know what? There are no cute girls for you to pray on here. So leave is what I said to the wolves, right? But then all of a sudden, the only sound bites people heard was, there are no cute girls here. And so that became the running joke amongst our staff. And they always say, but you said there's no cute girls here. And I said, yes, for you to pray on, so leave. That's what I meant. Um, and there are some cute girls here, I guess, so I'm not going to, don't quote me on that. But again, you can make the Bible and the preacher and whatever say anything you want if you take it out of context and just take one sound bite. And that's what the Pharisees are doing. And again, for honest with ourselves, and we all do this, rather than us conforming our lives to the Bible, we try to conform the Bible to our lives. That's just a natural tendency because we want to justify ourselves and feel good about our choices. Human creativity 
is seen greatest when people try to justify their sin. Let me say that again. Human creativity is seen greatest when people try to justify their sin. And I've seen it countless times, not just in the lives of people, but even my own life. And that's what happens here. The Pharisees are trying to take Leviticus 19 and say, how can we make it fit so we can hate the Romans, hate Jews that don't think like us, and only keep our certain clique and love those people that we like? How do we do that? And they twist the scripture to do that. But look at what Jesus says. Go back to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 44. This is the last of Jesus' six challenges where he says, but. Old Testament says this. Pharisees interpret it this way, but I say to you. Verse 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So there's point number two. In fact, we are to love our enemies like God loves his enemies. So don't twist the scriptures and make it uh, justify like I hate these people. I hate these people in this political party. I hate people from this country. These people get on my nerves. He says instead, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That word enemies in the Greek means the people who pursue you to seek your destruction. People who follow after you, who stalk you. To pursue your destruction. So they're happy at your destruction, your downfall, and your demise. Those are your enemies. And he says, what are we supposed to do with them? We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to love them. Not like them. We don't have to hang out with them, be their best friend. But he says, we must love them. And the reason he gives is because of verse 45 and 48. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. He didn't say, do a son, but he says, be a son demonstrate that you're members of the family of God in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 48, therefore you're to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. He says, you and I are supposed to walk in the ways of God our father. He says, if we're children of God, if we've been born again, we walk in his way. So again, point number two is, in fact, we're supposed to love our enemies like God loves his enemies. He says there in verse 45, so that you may be sons of your father, who is in heaven, look at this, for he causes his son, it's a possessive pronoun, God owns the son, he owns it all, to rise on the evil and the good. This morning we saw the sun rise on both Christians and non-Christians, Jews, Muslims, Republicans and Democrats. We saw the sun rise on both saints and sinners, friend and foe. And he says he also sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. It's not just Christians when it rains whose lawns are green. He says even the non-Christian neighbor of yours, his lawn is green because God sends, sends rain for both the Christian farmer and the non-Christian farmer. God loves everybody. He demonstrates his love by sending his goodness on all. And because of that, as children of God, as sons and daughters of God the Father, if God's love has consumed your heart, now love others, even your enemies. And for many of us, if we're honest, our prayer lives are impotent and powerless. And so we barely pray. But here he says this. One thing that we should pray for is to pray for the, our enemies, those who persecute us. And I don't know about you all, but I want to encourage you. If you want to have a different outlook on how you view your enemies at work or at school. And I'm going to say this. If you say, hey, I really don't have enemies at all. If you walk with Jesus Christ, if you are a member of the kingdom of light, the kingdom of darkness is opposed to you. You should have enemies. The more you walk with him, the more you're going to have enemies. Those people, you and I need to be praying for, me included. So he says, again, we're supposed to love our enemies like God loves his enemies. Not like them, to love them. And here's what love is, a definition. Love is a commitment to seek God's best and wholeness. Love is a commitment to seek God's best and wholeness. It's not a feeling, it's a commitment. 
It's sacrificial, incarnational. Sacrificial, incarnational. Why do I say that? Because Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love in this, that while we are still sinners, while we are still enemies of God, God demonstrates his love by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, the verse that many of you will have on your wedding day. All those verbal participles demonstrate that love is always an action. Love is a verb. Love is giving. Love is doing. Love is showing kindness. Love is giving mercy. It's always a verb. Write this down, Proverbs 25, 21 through 22. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22 is what Paul quotes in Romans 12. And he basically says, hey, do good to your enemies and bless them and pray for them. And he says, demonstrate your love for them. And again, he says, when we do this, when we do this, we demonstrate that God's love has captivated our hearts, that God's love is inside of us. Because here's the thing, if we're honest with ourselves, all of us in here have an easy time loving people we like. It's easy to have affection for those with whom we have affinity. But the challenge is this, is what do you do when you're around difficult people? What do you do when you're around people that you don't like? What do you do when you're around people that get on your nerve? What do you do with people who are hoping for your downfall, people who are around you that you know that if tomorrow you said, hey, I was diagnosed with this illness, they would rejoice. If, you, if they found out that you'd gotten fired or laid off from your job or furloughed, they'd say, yes. What do you do when you're around people like that? And this is the test here. God says if you're a child of God and you're gripped by the gospel and Christ's love, he says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. Um. As many of you know, I make a, a smoothie every morning for breakfast. And uh, I have a base that I use, and usually it's some kind of tea, turmeric tea, green tea. So last night I was making some jasmine green tea to use for my smoothie this morning. I make it and I refrigerate it so it's cold when I make my smoothie. And last night I poured the boiling water in a cup and put the tea bag in. As I put the tea bag in, I heard the voice of God, y'all. And God said, Icky, you're just like that tea bag. And I said, why, God, because we're both from Asia? He said, no. I said, no, 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 no. He said, because as long as the tea bag stays in the box and in the package, you really don't know what's on the inside. But the moment that tea bag is placed in hot water in a difficult situation where it's on the inside is now evident to everybody on the outside. And you know what? Right now we're in this box right here, this building, and we're all tea bags sitting in here. But you know what? Where we're going to see what's really inside of us when God puts us in hot water situations with difficult people that we don't like. It's getting real quiet in here, y'all. That's when you see what's really on the inside. When we're around our enemies and those who would persecute us. And God says, in those hot water situations, depend on me, trust me, rely on the Holy Spirit so that you're able to seek the best and do good to your enemies. The word here in verse 48, therefore you to be perfect. The word perfect is teleos. It means perfect without need or even mature. And again, he says, if you want to demonstrate that you are a child of God, if God does it, you do it. If God is holy, you be holy. If God loves, you love. He says that's what's going on here. So the application is this, is our maturity or our completeness is seen in the way that we love. 1 John says the exact same thing. 1 John is a book all about fellowship. 
He says, if you have friendship or fellowship with God, the way that you can say, I love God, not how loud you sing on Sunday, but how you love your neighbor and others and your enemies on Monday. Not how you love God on Sunday, he says, is how it's seen on Monday. And how you love the people around you, especially when you're in the hot water situations. And notice this, verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Rhetorical question, none. Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If you greet only your brothers, and he's talking about biological family members, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So here's point number three here is it's natural to love people you like, but it's not natural to love people you don't like. Why does he say that? He says, verse 46, for if you love those who love you, if you love those that you like, what reward do you have? Nothing. Do not even the tax collectors do that same. Here's the context here. So the tax collectors in that day, as you remember, Israel is under Roman occupation. They're being colonized. The Jews are being oppressed. And so the tax collectors were those who fraternized and partnered with the Romans to collect taxes. And so they were considered the lowest of low in the society. And so we may not understand that concept. I know people have talked about IRS agents and getting audited. But this is how the Jews would view a tax collector. They were viewed as the lowest of lows, people who would use other people for their gain. So it would be like this. It would be like saying, don't even extortionists love people that love them. Don't even the mafia love people who love them. Don't even human traffickers love people who love them. Yes, human traffickers may sell children and women. They may do that. But you know what? They love their own children and their own wives because that's natural. So he says, as believers, as sons and daughters of God, he says, of course you're going to love family and friends and those people that you like who have affinity. But he says, what reward is there for that? Your reward is having a good time on earth. But he said, even tax collectors, extortioners, mafia members, human traffickers do the exact same thing. He says this. He says, if you greet only your brothers, and that day the Jews would hug and give a kiss on the cheek to their family members, he said, if you do that only for your brothers and sisters, everyone does that. He says, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles, the unbelievers, do the same thing. Again, if you only love people you like, that's a natural thing. But look what Jesus says in Luke 6, Luke 6, Luke 6, Luke 6, 35. And this word love here in Luke 6, 35 is that word agape, again, which means a commitment. It's not a feeling. It's a commitment to seek God's best and wholeness, and it's sacrificial and incarnational. Luke 6, 35, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. So he's saying, don't make those people that you love, your enemies, a project saying, I'm gonna like pray for them and love on them and they're gonna come to Jesus and become my best friend and come to Bayou City. He says, don't treat them as a project. He said, just love them expecting nothing in return. And look at this, and your reward will be great. And I believe that reward is both on earth but also in eternity. And you will be sons of the most high for he himself is kind Two, ungrateful and evil men, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Again, he says, just like God loves his enemies, God is merciful to his enemies. 
He says, you too, be good, loving to your enemies. And he says, your reward, my reward, our reward is great if we do that. And also this, before we get a little too big-headed like we all normally do, as we read this passage about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, we, we're the hero. I got haters, I got doubters, I got enemies. But you know what? There's probably somebody sitting in Cyprus right now, somebody at Tomball right now, who's sitting there thinking about you because you're their enemy. You're the one that frustrates them. You're the one that's offended them. You're the one that's angered them. And I would hope that you would want them to treat you in a loving way, in a merciful way. Amen? So he says again, go back to Matthew. We'll wrap up. Do not even the Gentiles do the same. It's natural to love people you like, but it's not natural to love people you don't like. Evil people even love people they like. Quick show of hands. How many of y'all in here have ever been hurt by somebody, like hurt and pained by somebody? Only half the people in here have ever been hurt by somebody? Okay, the other half. How many of y'all like lie in church like regularly, like lie? <laughs> We've all been hurt and experienced pain. And it's very hard to love people that have caused us pain because the pain is so great. Have y'all been there before? Whether it's your ex, whether it's your boss, whether it's a racist attack, it's hard to love people, impossible, matter of fact, to love people that have hurt you. And that's why this is a radical love fueled by God. If God is in your life and the Spirit's in you, that's what 1 John 4, 7 says, love one another. And that love comes because we're born of God and we know God out of a relationship with God. Um, next Sunday, Kevin Barra is going to be preaching here. So we're going to rotate. I'll be at Cyprus. Johnny will be at Tomball and Kevin will be here because we want to make sure that this is still one church in three locations. So you get to hear from Kevin. Same text we're going to go over like we've been doing. And it's a cool thing about our relationship. We've become like brothers. So I'm the oldest brother. Johnny's in the middle. And then Kevin's a little brother. So we always diss Kevin for being like the youngest guy who's like clueless and stuff. And here's the thing too. Like we even wear the same kind of shirt. So Johnny wears an XL. I wear a large. Kevin, the little brother, wears a medium. So he gets dissed all the time for wearing a medium kind of thing. So um, anyway, so we were joking around. Two weeks ago, we were in our staff meeting as campus pastors and um, Johnny is a former martial arts guy, and so he had some back pain, some tightness in his back. So he said, hey, would you forgive me? Um, I'm going to sit in this recliner. My back's so tight and it's in pain. I'm going to sit down in this recliner. Y'all sit in y'all chairs, but I'm going to sit kind of like this so I take some pressure off my back. Great pain. And every time he'd move, uh, he'd wince. And every time he'd kind of sit up, he'd wince in pain. So the pain he was experiencing was great. But then his wife had just completed a Bible study downstairs. She came by the office, opened the door, popped her head and said, Oh, hi, Johnny. I love you, smooches. Whatever, right? Johnny gets up out of the chair. Oh, honey, I love you. Smooches back. I'll see you tonight when I get home, right? And this is what happened. I thought to myself, I said, just three seconds ago, you were complaining about how great a pain you were in how you could not move and the pain was too great and you had to stay in this reclined position. But as soon as your wife came in, you popped out of that chair, looked at your wife and blew kisses to her and, and said, I love you. You know why that happened? Because his love was greater than the pain. And that's what we have to get to, y'all, that people have inflicted pain on us, they've hurt, hurt us, 
But if we're going to love our enemies like God wants us to and commands us to, the love has to be greater than the pain. I'm not denying the pain. I'm not denying the offense. But our love has to be greater. And here's the thing. Tim Keller says it this way. He says the heart, the essence of forgiveness is this, is for us absorbing the pain rather than giving it. That's why we want vengeance. That's why we want to pay people back because people cause us pain. Now we want to have other people feel our pain. But if you're going to forgive, you've got to absorb that pain just like Christ took on our sin. And he says when we absorb the pain and now God says love your enemy and pray for them, God, you're asking me to do the impossible. And that's when we say, God, I yield to you. The love that you have for me when I was your enemy. Now I want that love to flow through me. And that love has to be greater than the pain. And I'll tell you this, married couples, if you keep inflicting pain on one another, you're going to have a very painful marriage. But if one of you all can in maturity say, you know what, I'm going to absorb the pain. Though the pain is great, my love is even greater. So here's the big idea for today. Because this radical love will change this church. If we can love one another, as John 13 says, as a witness to the world, but we can love our enemies, this love will change the world. It will change this church to the point where we will not even have to open our mouths. People will come in and say, you know what? Jesus is here. This church is radically focused on Jesus. You know why I can tell? Because the people here love one another with a radical love. Do they hurt each other? They do. Do they have misunderstandings? They do. But there is a love here that I just can't put my finger on. That love I want. And our world that's broken, dysfunctional, and divided, if we come with that kind of love, we can change the world. So here's the big idea for today. Love people you don't like and that don't like you. I think it says love people you don't like, add and don't like you. Love people that you don't, don't like and that don't like you. If it's hard to think about enemies, think about it this way. Love people that you don't like. Think right now, people in your mind that you say, that's the last person I'd want to have lunch with. That's the last person I'd want to be stuck in a conference room with for the next three hours. That's the last professor I'd want to grade my paper. Or that you know, that's the person that if I were to be on furlough yet tomorrow, they would be rejoicing, throwing a party. If I said, you know what, I've got this diagnosis, I've got this trouble in my marriage, they'd be the ones rejoicing. Now they're getting theirs. God is saying, those people that you're thinking of right now, supernaturally love them. And if we do that, this church will be radically different. And my hope is that all Christian churches, that would be the norm, that we would love people with this radical love. In 1983, a musician, a professional musician by the name of Daryl Davis, was playing a country western gig. Daryl Davis is African American. He's played with the greats, Jerry Lee Lewis, Chuck Berry, all the rock and roll R&B greats he's played with. He's a piano player. On this occasion, he was playing a country western show, and after he finished playing, he was there, and a man came up to him, a white man, and said, you're a very good piano player. You sound a lot like Jerry Lee Lewis, the greatest piano player ever to live. And so then uh, Daryl Davis said, well, Jerry Lee Lewis and I are friends. And matter of fact, I don't know if you know this, but it's actually black musicians, black blues players that taught Jerry Lee Lewis how to play the piano. This white man was taken back by that. They began to have a conversation. 
And this man admitted to Daryl Davis, a black man, saying this. I hate to admit this to you, but I feel like I have to. I'm a member of the KKK. And Daryl Davis was taken back saying, you are. And he said, tell me more. And began to tell about his journey into the KKK. So then Daryl Davis did something radical. And there's an interview he did for Christianity Today talking about his faith in Jesus Christ that propels him and moves him to love across racial lines against even those who would hate him. So he asked his KKK member, get this, the next time y'all have a Klan rally, I want to come. Now that's radical right there, right? To come to a KKK rally with, I don't know, dozens and dozens, maybe hundreds of KKK members, and you as a black man attending this? And this is what happened. He began to build relationships. He would invite them out to lunch. Now that's radical. And get to know them. He would hear their story. They would hear his story. And to date, since 1983, God has used him to lead over 200 people out of the KKK. They've renounced saying white supremacy is wrong, this is wrong, the KKK is wrong. He has a collection somewhere between 40 and 45 hoods and robes from former KKK members. A former KKK grand dragon wizard, whatever, one of the national leaders, is now his best friend. And here's the thing, I'm not saying if we radically love people that everyone is going to come to Jesus and life is going to be better. There, he said there are going to be people still in the KKK that hate my guts and they will go to the grave hating my guts. But you know what? I have been called to love them. And you know what? That same call is on us, y'all. That same call is on us. That again, as you think about that person, as you go to work tomorrow, as you're in community group, as you're in class, that teammate, that ex-friend, that ex-ex, that you say, man, they get on my last nerve. The way they make me feel so low, so little. And you in return... Love them like God loves you is radical. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that you didn't wait for us to be right with you, to be your friends. God, we know from Scripture that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. And God, we're grateful for that, that you demonstrate your love. It wasn't a latent, passive love, but it was an active love. Love is a verb. So God, I pray for us right now, myself included. God, I've got people in my life I really don't like, if I'm honest. And there are people I know that don't like me. But God, you've called us and commanded us in the same way that you love everyone, friend and foe, people who embrace you and people who have distanced themselves from you, people who love you and people who hate you, people who acknowledge you and people who deny your existence. Master, I pray supernaturally right now that you would fill us with your spirit so that we can love our enemies. What a radical command. In a world full of revenge and retribution and payback, where that's become the cultural norm, Master, I pray now that we would be countercultural that we would love those who hate us, that we pray regularly for those who persecute us, for those who are hoping for our downfall, our demise, and our destruction, that they'd be on our prayer list, that perhaps we would invite them for lunch, 
get to know them. That you, through your sovereign grace, would even change our perspective on them, God. To see them in the Imago Dei, the image of God. God, we pray that you would bring healing to this church. Healing to our community of faith. Healing through this radical love. This self-sacrificing, incarnational, committed, unconditional love, God. Heads bowed, eyes closed. If you're here today, again, our prayer team is not here because of what we're going through right now in this season. And you're saying, you know what, I'm going to work tomorrow. I'm going to class tomorrow. And there is a person that I, I don't like. I can be honest enough to admit that. And there are people at work or other people I know, an ex that does not like me. And I need prayer, supernatural empowerment from God to love them. Would you stand right where you are? And I just want to pray for you. If you say, I need, I need prayer. Thank you. I see you standing. Thank you. Thank you. God, I pray for those who are standing particularly. Thank you for their courage and their willingness to submit to Christ. God, the Sermon on the Mount is kingdom orders if we're kingdom citizens. So I pray that those who are standing would be kingdom representatives, ambassadors for the kingdom, so that when they go to work tonight or tomorrow, school tomorrow, their neighborhood tomorrow, or later today, people would not see them, but they would sense your presence and your love. And that it would blow them away because it's so radical, so in your face, so kind, so gracious, so giving. So would you empower those who are standing, God, supernaturally. And I pray that they would not give glory and credit to any of us here, God, but give glory and credit to you. And Master, I pray that you would reward these who are standing, both in time and in eternity, for loving and blessing their enemies and praying for those who persecute them. Pray for those who are here today who have yet to put their faith in Christ. God, all this stuff we talked about is utterly impossible in our flesh and our own selves. God, we naturally love people that we like. So I pray that if there's any here today that have yet to put their faith in Christ, today would be the day they place their faith in Christ and receive the free gift, receive the tangible demonstration of your love no one else may love them. Their mom may not love them. Their dad may not love them. Their friends may not love them. But to know that there is a God who loves them and demonstrate that by sending his son, that today be the day they put their faith in Christ. God, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, your son, your beloved son, and all God's people said, amen. Hey, just a reminder on your phones, on your apps, if you have a prayer request, you can push prayer, and we would love to pray for you. Again, if there's a situation where you feel like that tea bag, I'm going into a hot water situation, we would love to join you in prayer. So please submit one through the app.